Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino in the element wealth studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this fine tuesday in the uh, final full week of may here rhino oh yeah man this month has flown by as the expression says it sure seems like it Time flies when you're having fun. I reckon so. But I don't know how it applies to us. But. <laughs> what do you mean? we got elections coming up. How oh, much yeah. more fun can it get for us? <laughs> Gee whiz. We got, and we, look at this. We got back-to-back. We got the state elections in 23, and they're starting to uh, simmer up to a bit of a boil in certain races. And then we, we move right into... National elections. We go to the polls next year, it's hard to believe, November 24, to elect the president of these United States. There's probably going to be a fair amount of overlap for those two as well. You think so? Yeah, because uh, folks are campaigning now for federal offices. And Well, that, and it, it feels like national politics plays a larger part in statewide politics than it has in previous generations. I would agree with that. Totally would agree with that. Or at least the last few generations. There was a historical time when it was a really big deal, but yeah. I would totally agree with that. So you know that yesterday, Senator Tim Scott from the great state of South Carolina announced he is a candidate for president on the Republican ticket there. And uh, former President Donald Trump wasted no time in responding to that. He said, good luck to Senator Tim Scott in entering the Republican presidential primary race. He wrote that on his Truth Social He wasn't really critical of him, but I think he eventually will be, because that's pretty much how he rolls. He said, uh, did Scott, Tim Scott, I'm the candidate the far left fears the most. When I cut your taxes, they called me a prop. When I refunded the police, they called me a token When I pushed back on President Biden, they even called me the N-word. 
I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. The truth of my life disproves their lies. He said, he likes this refrain, greatness, not grievance. I respect him. I do. I like that. He's re I respect him, and he is admonishing the perpetual victimhood that certainly has become pervasive in this nation. And he, of course, comes from a background. They talk, it, they talk about cotton, isn't that the refrain, cotton to Congress. His grandfather, I believe, picked cotton in the South. He grew up quite poor, impoverished, with his mother, I think, and brother, if I'm not mistaken, in a single room, as he describes it. He's got $22 million bucks in his bank account, more than any other candidate at this point. And on the Republican side, he also garnered support from Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon. I think Elon is making a financial contribution. Also, Larry Ellison. If you don't know Larry, he's the founder of Oracle, big tech company, software database company. So this is going to be interesting. The, uh, the field is expanding. We expect to see Governor Ron DeSantis also enter the race sometime this week. I think Trump said, Rhino, something to the effect that Tim Scott was a more quality candidate. I, I don't know the exact terminology he used, but... More so than Ron de Sanctimonious. <laughs> well, I mean, he might have a point. The only thing I've seen multiple people try to pin to Tim Scott as a detraction yeah. is that he's a bachelor. He's 57 and never married with no kids. Hmm. I've seen three or four different people try to, to make that an issue, and then only a handful of people try to poke holes in his policy. Yeah. Huh, that's true. He uh, he also is an outspoken opponent. He has repudiated the teaching of critical race theory in our schools. He calls it a quasi-Marxist academic framework. I concur with him in that respect. The left tells you it's not. They want you to believe that critical race theory simply means that you're teaching about contributions to society by black people. That's what they want you to believe. And by eliminating the teaching of critical race theory in our schools, that means young Americans will not be informed on the many great black people throughout our history. I've witnessed that, by the way, at the state capitol not far from here, when the bill, you remember in the 22 session, was being deliberated by deeply unserious Democrats. Right. Who all had to go to the podium there and say their piece to appease, I believe, their constituents. And I literally heard one say that... Well, they got to have a quote to put on the campaign poster somehow. 
once stood in the chamber and said the kids of Mississippi would not know who Jackie Robinson is. <laughs> that's what he said. And that's a deeply unserious comment. <laughs> it is. That's well, someone who has put party and nonsense above reality and the country. I agree. And, and, but that, as you know, is rather rampant in the political realm in our country. And so that uh, I found that a bit disturbing because it's just, as you said, it's unserious and it's untrue. No, nobody ever said they objected to people knowing about the greatness of Jackie Robinson and the barriers he broke and uh, history that shows he was a good person on top of being a dang good baseball player. Up in New York... <laughs> at Hunter College in Manhattan. You've seen this. It's gone rather viral, as they say. A New York college professor, or a college professor at Hunter College, was not happy about some students who set up a little table of information there protesting abortion. These students did. And she not only got in their face, she so, sort of carried them. <laughs> I'm turning it into a verb. She used uh, expletives and profanity. It's typical. And, uh, and really admonishing these kids here, she used her hands to essentially push all the printed materials stacked on the table there about their uh, their cause. She just pushed them all over the floor, just being disruptive. She said, you're not educating. They're, they claim to be educating the student population there about their pro-life The views. reality of abortion. Right. And they, she didn't like that. She said, you're not educating, fill in the blanks, the S word there. This is fill in the blanks effing propaganda, the art professor told the students. What are you going to do, like anti-trans next? So you're equating, you're equating opposition to abortion to transgender concepts, essentially. So, Considering it's an art teacher, I can almost guarantee the uh, typical uniform was being worn. Uh, yes. Power bang, power bangs, funky glasses. Yes. Yes. Brightly colored hair. Yes. How did you know Didn't that? Didn't even have to see it. <laughs> You're exactly right. And look, got this scowl on her face. I mean, just perpetually aggrieved, mad at the world. They've mistreated me. They're trying to save babies in the womb. How dare them? It's incredible. We are stepping aside for a break on middays. When we return, Senator Josh Harkins joins us in the Element Well Studios. I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
are back in the Element Well Studios. It is middays. And joining us now is Josh Harkins. He serves in the Mississippi State Senate. He's from Rankin County, serves as the chairperson of the Senate Finance Committee, which means his job is to make sure we got enough money to pay all the bills. Senator, <laughs> good to have you. Good morning, Gerard. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So we uh, we had, I thought, sort of a moderately eventful 2023 session. It seemed like 2022 had a lot more stuff going on. Uh, well, there was, a, I mean, 20. Yeah, 22 was was really busy. Uh, obviously, with the tax bill uh, in in my, I guess in my lane. So that that yeah. kept us pretty busy all session. And um, 23, I, I think we touched on a lot of issues. I think we, you know, it was more of a a, a good spread of a you know of shotgun blast more so than a than a yeah. focus of you know really concentrating on taxes and uh, everything. The prior session. Um, we touched a lot of issues. We touched election reform. We touched, uh, you know, adoption. We touched, uh, you know, hospital grants. We touched uh, infrastructure. Uh, that was a, a big deal we did this past session. Um, so th- we, we touched a lot of areas. And, and look, in, in the session, there are 3,000 bills that get filed. You got everybody coming from every different angle with legislation. And so it's it's hard to get everything. Um, but I think we we've been very productive over the last four years. I think in what we've uh, accomplished and what we've done and, and where we are. And what's our financial condition? Um, <laughs> our financial position right now in Mississippi is is pretty good. I don't know if there's ever been another time. Obviously, I've only been here. This is my twelfth uh, year, but I don't know if there's ever been a time where we've been in a better position financially in our state. Our rainy day fund is full. Uh, we have not authorized any new uh, bonds or basically taken any uh, debt out there. Um, we've paid off almost over $500 million in debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're bringing our overall debt obligation down close to $4 billion. Um, our statutory limit on borrowing is about probably $12, $13 billion, but we've only, we're about four, close to mm-hmm. $4 billion by the end of this year. We'll, we've paid off. Um, you know, sitting on. Uh, a good pile of reserves got you know the revenues are still coming in uh pretty good so i, I think we're in a, in a good position we've we put in a tax cut uh that we talked about earlier that's going to put more money in mississippians hands and uh this is a very shortened uh tax cut it's not an extended one like the one we passed in 2016 that was a 10-year implementation mm-hmm. this is a uh, almost twice the size and in half the time uh tax cut so i think both of these will actually be coming to um, you know, full absorption by the time by 2026 or so, I believe. Uh, so we'll have both of those implemented by the uh, by that time. But uh, putting close to 525, 550 million dollars back in the in the taxpayers' pockets. Plus uh, our rainy day fund. Yeah, our rainy day fund. We're we're set to withstand a, a storm if it comes. Um, you know, and I think that's important. Uh, you know. Our our fiscal responsibility has put us in this position, taking you know responsible measured steps, and um, the state's in a really good position right now. And there's a statutory maximum, right? Ten percent, ten percent of general fund. General fund. Yeah. So we're sitting at what seven hundred million dollars? It's seven hundred million dollars. Yeah. In the rainy day fund. In the rainy day fund. So to recap, rainy day fund is full. We have not borrowed money like we have our our um, our capacity. Is uh, about 
three times more than what we really got outstanding in terms outstanding, of debt yeah. right now. If you put it in layman's terms, if you're if you bought a you know a two hundred thousand dollar house, you got about probably what twenty five thirty percent debt on it. Yeah, that's uh, where we are. It's a great position to be in. Yeah, and I I've been watching the revenues. I get the reports. I'm sure you do too from oh, yeah. the Department of Revenue, and and so they've. Uh, trended i wouldn't say trended down but the difference uh year over year is down somewhat but still up it's still up and we're still and up over estimates but we we've baked in some of these cuts that we we were expecting in the income tax obviously we've only got six months of the tax cut in this fiscal year because right. if our fiscal year ends june 30th so we've got the first six months of this year and then the, the second part of the calendar year will go into fiscal year 24 budget but Yes, the the revenues are still coming in good. They're they're a little lower uh, year over year, but that was to be expected. Yeah, and the tax cut that's in effect now, the portion of the tax reform is the elimination of the four percent percent bracket. That was right. about one hundred eighty five to one hundred ninety million dollars estimated. Yeah, uh, two hundred bucks a taxpayer essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and in the next year we'll go from a five percent. We'll have a flat rate. Yep. Uh, that rate will drop from 5 to 4.7 in the following year, from 4.7 to 4.4 in the following year to 4. So we phase it in phase over, it in the, over the three years. Yep. <clears throat> no and triggers, we'll, just a, a gradual uh, decrease in the rate. And then we'll have a single flat rate of 4% on all income above, taxable income above 10000 bucks. Correct. And then you include your standard yeah, deductions yeah. and everything else. But I think it, it sets a, a good precedent of, of where our head is on, on fiscal uh, matters as it relates to taxes. We've, we put in um, you know, a really good tax cut that's going to give – it's meaningful. It's going to give money back to taxpayers. Um, I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at how revenues are trending. And as long as we've got re- re- record revenues coming in, as long as we're trending in the right direction, I think we'll continue to look at tax cuts and, and putting more money back into the hands of Mississippians. Something that didn't get over the finish line the last two years that, that we hear about a lot, certainly, here at the program, is the citizen ballot initiative process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Can't seem to get uh, on the same page on that. Yeah. What do you think? I think we'll get one. I'm I'm for a ballot initiative. I think that's something that uh, is important. I think what you don't want to do is you don't want to see what's happened in California and these other states where every year there's there's just issues that are all over and, and uh, the threshold is so low that it makes it easy for something to to get in. Uh, and, and I don't think it should go in the Constitution. I think it should go in the statute. Right. I think you know. Thank goodness the 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 uh, medical marijuana program is not in the Constitution. That is not where you regulate um, uh, an industry. We don't regulate any other industry in our Constitution. I think it's important that that we we do it in statute. That way we can come through and adjust. We had some adjustments this year in, in the uh, cannabis uh, law, and so and I think we'll have adjustments going forward. I think as any regulation of, of any industry that uh, that there is, you know, you want the flexibility to to move and to pivot, and I think that's uh, important. And if it would have been in the Constitution, it would have been very cumbersome and difficult yeah. to manage. But the the uh, in fairness though the bill that the house uh, that originated in the house it did in fact uh, address statute it would allow mm-hmm. citizens to put a measure on the ballot that would uh, amend or establish statute and and the folks in the house I think agreed with that concurred yeah. with you that we don't really want this thing to be a, a situation where uh, we citizens at the ballot box are putting laws essentially like a medical marijuana program in the constitution. 
Yeah. But that process ought to be reserved for the legislature refers an amendment to the ballot, which is how we amend our Constitution, and the voters vote on it, and we keep these kinds of citizen-initiated measures to statute, which makes a whole lot more sense. So yeah. hopefully we'll see something get going on that. Okay, um, so I, I want to go. Yeah. Excuse me. I want to go back to taxes real yeah. quick. You know, you, you hear people. I've had people come up and talk to me about the whole, you know, elimination of income tax and how we're getting there, and and you know what what people need to understand is right now, last fiscal year, we brought in two point five billion dollars in individual income tax. Yeah. Out of seven point three billion, and so that's about thirty four percent of your your revenue. Yep. If you wanted to, you know, and and some had plans of eliminating over five years or seven years, and I want to give you an idea of what that means uh, in in how you're going to adjust your 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 spending. If you eliminated these agencies, okay, think about this: two point five billion dollars. You're going to, have to figure out how you're going to fund government and all the services that everybody is is uh, you know wanting and, and desiring. If you eliminate it, and this is hypothetical, I don't want anybody saying that Josh Harkins advocated to, to eliminate these agencies, <laughs> but if you cut the, the Attorney General's um, department completely, you eliminated Audit, Secretary of State, Wildlife, Corrections, Mental Health, Department of Health, DHS, Child Protective Services, Department of Revenue, Department of Public Safety, Homestead Exemption, Military, and our Department of Rehab Services. That's only $1.49 billion. You still got to come up with another billion dollars of cuts. Right. In so, there. so, Senator, though, does that analysis also contemplate the surplus? No, it does that, not. It okay. does not do that. But okay. I'm, I'm just I'm giving perspective okay. of how you. much you got to cut. Now, that doesn't Fair touch enough. education. It doesn't touch Medicaid. It doesn't touch. Those are the big ticket those items. Those are the big ticket items. Yeah. So it's not, you know, how you do this matters. And I think that's what I want under, people to understand is that, you know, we're trying to make responsible decisions on how we, you know, work our, our, our taxes lower to eventually eliminate. That'd be great. But also, how do you, you know, grow, growth is part of that. Yeah. We have to grow into this at some level. Let's talk about it on the other side of the break. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we got Senator Josh Harkins in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. The great David Bowie. <laughs> Little Ziggy. You know, Rhino, I went to an event last night, and several people were discussing uh, with me, approached me, and said how, that they enjoyed the show, but they especially enjoy your musical selection. Yeah, you got some good, good <laughs> I appreciate <music>. that. <laughs> we are uh, in the Element Well Studios uh, visiting with Senator Josh Harkins, just talking about 
Uh, he chairs, of course, the Senate Finance Committee. That means he's responsible for making sure we got enough money to pay all the bills and just attending to our financial status and uh, keeping us in uh, in good shape with respect to the uh, possible need, which we hope we don't have, to borrow money. We'd like not to have to, but when we do, it's pretty dang good when you got good credit ratings, mm-hmm. good bond ratings, so you pay the lowest interest rates when you go to the market to sell bonds. And, and we're in pretty good shape there, aren't we, Senator? Yes, we are. I mean, you know, you look at our debt and, and just the position we're in right now, I think it's, uh, you know, being able to pay off debt over the last two years without authorizing any new debt is, is a good good thing, and uh, hopefully we can continue that another year based on the way our revenues are trending. Yeah, and you know, some states aren't so fortunate. No, I think California's California's $32 billion Yeah, deficit. that's just ridiculous. $32 billion deficit. But that's why they're, they're hemorrhaging uh, citizens moving to other states. Uh, you just hope they leave their their voting tendencies behind if, uh, if that's what they voted for. And it does matter because a short two years ago, $100 billion surplus. Yeah. In two years, they flipped that. And that's just because, hey, we got all this money. Let's run in there and spend it, which is what they did. And now they're facing a, a deficit. Uh, but it, I think it's uh, an honest statement uh, that our legislature and our state leaders, you included among them, saw that extra money coming in, but were prudent about it, and uh, took care of business, paid down debt, uh, flushed out our rainy day fund, and we've got a couple other reserve funds, too, don't we, as well? Yeah, there's a few things, but, you know, it's a... It's a holistic approach that all of us, I think, bought into that, you know, this is a generational opportunity, and we did not want it to go to waste. We didn't want to, you know, just willy-nilly throw money out there at things that – because Lord knows, I I can tell you, uh, as Representative Lamar would too, uh, there is no shortage of requests for for monies for uh, projects across the state, infrastructure. Uh, but I think that was one of the things we wanted to focus on. We wanted to make a, a, a diligent and prudent investment in our in our infrastructure, sure. water, sewer, you know, infrastructure, roads, bridges. Um, that's what get that's what gets our economy moving. That's what's going to help our communities grow, and um, that's where a bulk of our our investments went. So, a question on the ceasefire text line for you from Mike from Madison: the money sitting in our rainy day fund is it? Uh, how how is that structured? Is it invested in accordance with state law? Or is it just sitting in a well, money market account? It's, how does that uh, work? it's sitting in it, well, it, it does allow our treasurer to invest it. I believe some like uh, yeah. CDs or, or whatever. But last year, I think we last fiscal year, I think we made fifteen million dollars on our cash reserves. Okay. This year, so far, I think we're at like fifty six million. Well, rates are rates up. are up. Yeah. So they are investing that money, and it, it is part of the revenue that's coming into the state. But that money is there. Uh, you can't have it in anything that uh, you can't get your hands on it quick if you yeah. needed it. So uh, it's just basically sitting there in cash, and I believe the uh, treasurer is investing it in some pretty liquid. And that's a good point. Yeah. You could certainly go invest it in in thirty year uh, treasury bonds. But you got to have access to it. It's a rainy day fund. It's a rainy that's, day fund. That's its purpose: is mm-hmm. to be there as a reserve and accessible and liquid. Now, and, and I'll tell you, you know, what constitutes a rainy day? Uh, that's you know, that's the part that's yeah. uh, 
kind of up in the air and, and, it, and that's you know stuff that we have to come to agreement on to, to use that money we've we've done things in the past where we've just cut budgets and we haven't used a whole lot of it uh, in in the past and and I think we've you know tried to be pretty uh, methodical about how we've used it but to keep it up but when I first got in here we didn't have much of a range well, I was gonna fund. say it hadn't always been no, full it hasn't at the statutory limit no. so there there have been times when we have been concerned about if we had the so-called rainy day emergency, where the heck we're going to get money yeah. to deal with that. But um, so I, I certainly hats off to you guys for making sure that we're uh, running things with some degree of, of uh, conservative fiscal thought and uh, and just prudence. You were just sharing with me off the air uh, something that's gotten national attention with respect to tax policy in, here in the state regarding immediate expensing of capital investment. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, Senator Johnson uh, sponsored a bill uh, that basically allows businesses to take an immediate and full deduction for research, experimental, um, for uh, expenditures for business assets that are qualified property, uh, improved property. Um, that's the year it's put into service. So it's immediate uh, expensing. So you don't have to spread it out over uh, a number of years. You can take that uh, that credit immediately. And, and what it does is it, it typically will spur investment. And uh, wages are going up. Uh, investment's going up. They're, they're allowed to take that full expensing deduction that first year uh, it's in service. Yeah. A key provision of the Trump tax cuts that's unfortunately now yeah, being phased, phased out. out. Yep, and there have been calls from Republicans uh, on the Hill, and certainly here on this program, uh, um, we've called for it as well. We need to make that permanent. That is really good tax policy, and we need to make that permanent. Let's talk for a minute about the hospital grant program that was enacted into law, hundred and four billion dollars this past year as a way to provide a sort of a lifeline, a financial lifeline to some of the struggling hospitals. It's come now to light. We, re- we received a letter here at Supertalk from one of the hospitals, Winston County, I believe, the CEO there, that said that this, uh, this money is really not accessible as they thought, that it's just not a straight grant available to, uh, to, to meet certain expense needs and to cover certain shortfalls. What do you know about this? What's going on? I've I've just heard recently about this, and I think that you know, obviously, COVID put a strain on our hospitals, and so it was it was the prudent use of ARPA funds to help try to do something for our hospitals. I think the the way that we structured it was based on beds, Mm -hmm. uh, like a grant based on the number of beds they have, but. uh, All ARPA funds have to be used in a way that that follow the rules with the legislation from from Congress. So. There are certain expenses that hospitals have that are eligible, and there are certain ones that are not. I, you know, like I said, I don't know enough about the the rub because uh, this wasn't brought up during the legislative session, and we didn't realize that. But um, if we have to come back in in a special session and do something, or if we, you know, can do something in January uh, when we come back in, uh, we maybe can make some changes. But you know, I think that the the allowable um, the allowable charges that are allowed the hospitals can use them for I just don't know what the difference is and and when we first were talking about this and meeting with them uh, what's changed so the CEO pardon me of Winston Medical Center Paul Black he said that essentially the legislation 
would uh, not make any funds available to the Louisville, the Winston Medical Center, just because it, it doesn't meet the ARPA requirements of reimbursing for COVID expenses, that they've already covered all those yeah. in, through other programs. So sounds like maybe something you guys need to look at. It we might not be that, as, yeah. as readily available, I guess, to the hospitals that need it as thought. It's not just strictly based on beds. You may apply for these grants to cover certain uh, financial Obligations at the, at these various hospitals and take care of that. So, I, but I wanted to pass it on. We just got informed of it late last week. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't. I I didn't hear anything about that uh, during the session. I think this was all something we were working towards to try to help hospitals. So yeah. Let's uh, something else that's a, a bit sticky. You and I have had some offline conversations about that ain't going away. Is PERS. Yeah. What are we gonna do about that? Well. Uh, I actually talked to uh, the director, uh, Mr. Higgins, the other day, and we're supposed to meet here in the next week or two. Uh, they've had some meetings. Uh, in the, During the session, they had uh, some meetings, and they took a step back from the position they took on uh, increasing the employer contribution by 5%. Right. And they're going to look at some other ways. And, and they've always talked about different ideas of how to make PERS more sustainable. And that's what we're going to visit with over the summer, uh, some of the, the findings they've had. And I think uh, their meetings are public. They've, they've talked uh, about you know possibly creating a fifth tier or something right. like that. I don't uh, know specifically what their ideas are. But I know that if, if, you, if you raise 5% on the employer contribution, that's going to, uh, in my opinion, equate to a very large tax increase on the local level. Our cities, our counties, our school districts, um, are going to probably have to raise millage to cover that. Yeah, and it's property taxes. Property taxes. Yeah. And it's uh, that's that's a big – it's going to be a big problem. Yeah. So, it needs to be addressed, though. So you guys know it. Yeah, absolutely. It's something I, I've talked to him about, and we're going to – we'll meet here in the next couple of weeks and, and continue conversations up until the session. we got to go, but I'd, I'd like to see – candidates, even at the statewide level, start talking about this a little bit more, because this is a serious problem that's not going to go away. No. It's, we need a Look, solution it for it. It impacts, I mean, it's part of our it's part of our budget, it's part of our responsibility, yeah. and it's it's something that we have to oversee and we'll yeah. have to deal with. Senator, appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Always Gerard. good to see Thanks you, sir. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. We're coming right back here in the Element Well Studios. Please stay with us. Two hands are fit to use. I'll drink my beer in a tavern, sing a little bit of these working man blues. This song for the working man. Come on, come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios, that of course I can only remember that from Karate Kid, right? Wasn't that Karate Kid? Oh yeah, when they're in the ring there, Daniel Son and the All Valley Karate <laughs> matches. Wax on, wax off. <laughs> oh yeah, great movie. So um, 
that was a good conversation. I appreciate Josh Harkins, uh, the senator, coming in. I, I will say this. He's always prepared. He's always got uh, the data at his disposal. And uh, rarely, if ever, do I pose a question to him that he, he doesn't have that. That's relevant to his swim lane, as he says, with finance that he's not prepared to answer. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, totally. Good info. So, let's see. Thomas and Greenwood. What you saying here, Thomas? A bunch of text there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so Tom's, of course, and m- me too, he wanted to know if I have uh, no longer support full income tax elimination. No, I fully support eliminating the income tax, and I've said before that I supported the original bill, but it was met with, shall we say, a great deal of resistance. That original bill, as you recall, would have eliminated the income tax in a very short period of time, fully eliminated but it also did increase sales taxes. And a lot of people didn't like that idea, and I understand that. <clears throat> Many retirees in particular didn't because retirees in Mississippi, I shouldn't say retirees, retirement income is not subject to income tax. So an increase in sales taxes would have effectively raised their taxes, is the way they viewed that. And that's accurate, though it's a fairly small amount. I mean, like, maybe $100 a year, maybe. And I know that's significant to to some people. I'm I'm not downplaying that whatsoever, but I would point out that most folks who are living off non-taxable retirement income have children and grandchildren who would benefit from this greatly because they're working and their income is subject to income tax. It is not retirement income. There, um, but so there were some problems with that, and there were other, as you recall, groups that um, get special concessions through the years in our law on sales taxes, manufacturing, housing, automobiles, farm equipment, etc. Those uh, those come to mind, and there was objection from those groups because they would recognize an increase uh, in their sales taxes. Um, in the sale of their goods and services or, or consumption, depending on which of those, those parties, those groups you fit into. But, you know, I, I try to make the point, but you've got to consider the fact that you're paying income tax as well and you no longer have an income tax. So we could certainly, we came up kind of with a, as you recall, the final bill, I should say the last bill proposed in 22. Because nothing got done in 23 on this. It was um, a bit of a hybrid, I guess you could call it. There was no increase in sales tax. There was a phasing out of the income tax, but it was over. Best case scenario, maybe 12, 15 years, assuming all these threshold revenue targets and thresholds were achieved through that period of time. And it was a phased-in approach. But over an extended period of time, because without the benefit of revenue from increasing sales taxes, you're just putting a big old hole in the revenue of the state. You heard the senator discuss that. It's more than a third of total revenue. About a half of it, our revenue comes from sales taxes. Slightly more than a third comes from income taxes. So you're taking a third of the revenue out. And, of course, you could point to the surpluses, which is what I asked the senator. 
well, what about the surpluses? And you, it's difficult to to see out into the future. Will those stay constant, continuous? You've got, I think, fairly significant macroeconomic headwinds on the horizon with respect to uh, the national economy to the extent that would affect Mississippi. It's hard to tell, but certainly that appears to be in the not-too-distant future. We've got um, the Fed, likely. I saw a report this morning that housing starts came in a little better than expected. New home sales, and so the Fed is looking at that saying, well, we got to raise interest rates because that's just not doing its job on, infl- on inflation. Now we've got a couple of Fed uh, governors who are saying, yeah, I think we're going to have to go 50 basis points in the next meeting in June. The market thinks they're pausing. I'm just pointing this out because this all affects the macro economy, and the macro economy includes, of course, economic activity in the state of Mississippi. That does affect revenues, and that just makes it more difficult to eliminate a source of revenue, that being the income tax, though I fully support it. But I also supported biting the bullet, which I don't really think it was, and slightly increasing sales taxes in exchange for full elimination of income taxes in a very short period of time. We're coming right back after Fox News and Super Talk News in the Element Wealth Studios. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It is middays, hour two of the program. We thank you so much for joining us. And uh, middays with moi and the Super Talk Eagle Hour, folks, will be down at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum at Camp Shelby in Hattiesburg this coming Friday. That, of course, in advance of Memorial Day. We are celebrating that with the museum and the Mississippi National Guard. It's a special day, and Camp Shelby is a special place, so tune in Friday as we honor and remember Mississippians who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our nation. That is what we uh, think about on Memorial Day, coming up next Monday. Also, sign up for our newsletter, supertalk.fm slash newsletter. You'll be glad you did. You can stay abreast of all the breaking news in Mississippi, and you definitely want to be plugged in with the statewide elections coming up in August. Hard to believe, primaries. And between now and then, we're going to be over at the Neshoba County Fair, and I'm sure the fireworks will be flying over there as the candidates address attendees there, fairgoers under the big tent. It'll be fun. So, uh, Thomas, yeah, I see your text, but you see you're wrong about that. I know that it's widely believed that the lieutenant governor blocked the income tax elimination. It is absolutely true he opposed it. I'll give you that. But the votes were not there in the Senate. 
The votes weren't there. Now, does the lieutenant governor have some stroke and say over Senate votes? Sure. Just like the Speaker does in the House. But I'll just remind again, the original bill that did pass the House and didn't get any traction in the Senate, it was pretty broadly opposed by a lot of people. So the House went back to the drawing board and made some adjustments. And the adjustments they they came up with, which would have fully eliminated the income tax, really was almost tokenism. And and I'm not um, repudiating the members of the House here, the Speaker, whatsoever. What What I'm trying to point out is that it was... A significant departure from the original bill and that it would phase it out over an extended period of time, provided all the stars aligned perfectly through that period. It's my opinion it meant it would have never gotten phased out. I don't think we would have ever hit those thresholds on time as proposed, as projected, to get it done. So to get it to get tax full income tax elimination in a short period of time, I just think, I don't think, I'm convinced, I'm 100% confident, you'd have to get the money somewhere else to make ends meet. Unless you could count on significant surpluses, way more than we're having right now, like double, more than double, permanently. I think that's very dangerous to expect that. So I there's more nuance to this issue. And again, I, I point out, Thomas, that I was and remain in favor of full elimination of the income tax. Testified to a joint committee meeting of House and Senate members in favor. And why? Thomas, you could put it up to a floor vote, man. I don't think you get how this stuff works. Come down to the dang Capitol and watch it. You can put it on a floor vote, it would lose in the Senate. The votes weren't there. Now, if you're not happy with the fact that the lieutenant governor wouldn't put it on the floor, that's perfectly fine. That's fair. That you you wanted to see it on the floor to get up and down votes to see who stands where? Absolutely. You get a chance to redress that situation at the ballot box this uh, this August. Pretty much the way it works. Yeah, I know leadership owns it, but leadership also includes other senators. I, I, I mean, I, I don't want the, the state to be run by two people any more than, than I would like to see the, the country, the nation's government, as well. It shouldn't be that way. Otherwise, let's just elect two or three people. Do they have power that exceeds that of the rank-and-file member of the specific chamber? Sure, they absolutely do. So do committee chair. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it still requires a certain number of votes here in Mississippi in the House and Senate, a majority unless it's a constitutional amendment, to get a statute passed. 
Ben from Madison says, they keep saying we don't want a ballot initiative process like California. Six issues ever made the ballot in 30 years and only three went into law. Our process, you're talking about in Mississippi, right, Ben? Our process was anything but the process in California. Well, remember those issues in Mississippi made it to the Constitution because we didn't have a way for the citizens to place a measure on the ballot that would affect statute. I know they don't like, uh, so what, yeah, let me finish, what makes it more difficult, especially if it moves to statute versus constitution, why make it more difficult? Um, I can't really say other than what those who opposed the, um, the process as drafted by the House, is there was concern about the number of signatures required, and those who have concerns about the number of signatures were stating their opposition on the basis that out-of-state, well-funded special interests could sort of hijack the process and push through anything they wanted into statute by simply funding a, a ballot initiative. I don't happen to share those concerns. I think it's just the opposite. Um, what what they're essentially doing by increasing the signature threshold, in my view, is is assuring that the only parties that would get a measure on the ballot would be well-funded, out-of-state interests. What those may be, from an issues perspective, I don't know. I am also fairly confident, highly confident, that if we got a citizen ballot measure process enacted, we'd see recreational marijuana pass, we'd see Medicaid expansion pass, and we would see some some access to abortion pass. I think those three would be the big measures that would likely immediately go to the ballot box, and I think they would pass. Ben also says, uh, I know they don't like talking about PERS, but it really needs to be debated. I appreciate you bringing it up. I agree with you, Ben, and Rhino, I know you've heard me say on the program that I intended to at least pose the question to everyone in state government uh, on what their plan is to address PERS. And the Senator's right. It is complicated, and it's going to require the brain trust of several different factions sorting this out. And like we've said so many times, you either got to cut the benefits, and not just not talking about current benefits, I mean you got to start phasing out benefits, take in more money, combination of the two. Um, and that could be in the form, as the Senator said, of a new tier. A new tier just means that everybody that enters the system after a certain date is subject to the structure, the framework of the program um, in that tier. And, and so it's likely to mean that the, if we do get a new tier, it's likely to be a defined contribution plan, which is similar to the standard 401k sort of private sector retirement savings plans we're all accustomed to in the private sector. And all that really means is your money's going into a designated account for you and when you retire, that's how much money you got available to you. And when it's out, you don't got no more money. 
in a defined benefit plan, which is what PERS is, what Social Security is, what Medicare is, it's not based on how much you put in. You could draw out a whole lot more than you put in, and most people do. That's a defined benefit plan. That's because the benefits are active until one passes away. It's not, well, the benefits are exhausted when they've all been paid out. It's not how it works. In fact, the average Medicare recipient in the United States receives about $350,000 more in benefits than they pay in. Pay in with interest, actually. But uh, we've got CCR bumping us out of this uh, segment here on Middays. We're in the Element Well Studios, and we'll be right back. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now, onto the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. A man walks down the street, he says, Why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight. Far away, my News is crossing the wire that Governor Ron DeSantis expected to announce his candidacy for president on Thursday. So we look forward to that. On the ceasefire text line, that's 601 879 Stanley in Lafayette, Louisiana says, Y'all talk like black people are the only ones that ever picked cotton. My grandmother and grandfather picked plenty of cotton. Well, no, certainly didn't mean to give that impression there, Stanley. I was just talking about what um, Senator Tim Scott uses, I guess, as kind of a, a, a refrain, if you will, to describe his rise to become a U.S. Senator, started out in the Congress, and now a candidate for president. He, he refers to that as his family went from, from cotton to Congress. And he was mainly talking about his grandfather. He says his grandfather was forced out of school as a third grader to pick cotton just to make ends meet in the family, and he never learned as a result to read or write. So I fully appreciate, Stanley, that there are white people that also pick cotton, and I'll share this, no big deal. My mother's one of them. My mother grew up in South Louisiana, poor as dirt, in Cajun country, had five siblings, and she was the the oldest female, pretty much served as kind of the mother, along with her mother, in the household. And, the, I mean, they had to pick cotton, to, just like Tim Scott said, to take to the town to sell to make ends meet. That's, that wasn't unusual, honestly, for the era. So there was no intention, certainly, to, to dismiss or not acknowledge that um, 
that it's not just black people that pick cotton. And in, in this case, Scott's grandfather, we're talking about beyond the slavery era, of course. My father actually had a similar situation. His his brother was bedridden and his, um, lived in a with a single mother. And he was forced out of school in the fifth grade and to go work in the shirt factory in New Orleans to to uh, also provide some income for the household. And he, too, could barely read or write, honestly. Uh, just about anything you could get up to the fifth grade, that was it. And that wasn't all that great back then. So, But I, I didn't mean to, certainly didn't mean to insinuate that whatsoever. But I think Scott's story is, is fascinating, and it's I think it is a uh, a reflection of the American dream in its own right. And I think he's right to point that out. I would be shocked, honestly, if in some way, shape, or form, President Trump doesn't start saying stuff, <laughs> all the name-calling he likes to employ, like Ron DeSanctimonious, and now it's Ron DeSalestax. <laughs> We played that yesterday for you. Wouldn't be surprising if he starts using some sort of oh nicknames, negative sort of nicknames for all the other candidates, including Tim Scott, and then that's going to draw ire. They're really going to have problems with that, aren't, aren't they? Because Tim Scott, he receives significant trashing from the left because he happens to be a, a black man that's conservative. They hate that. What do you mean? You know that. You're stepping out of line. You can't do that. You can't be an independent thinker and have your own views and philosophy. You can't do that. You've got to saddle up with us. What did Joe Biden say? You, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Remember that? And that goes unchecked by the mainstream media, which is despicable. So that's going to be quite the conundrum conundrum for the media-hating uh, people of Trump when they see Trump now going to say something likely negative about Tim Scott, because that's just how he rolls. It's what he does. He, he takes down, he trashes his competition. Gosh, who could forget I'll never forget that first debate. Weren't there 17 on the stage, some large number in the Republican primary? And he had a nickname for every single one of them. I think we should expect the same in this cycle. Well, I already got that on his main contender, DeSantis, but surely he's going to dream up something for Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy and now Tim Scott. I got to believe something's coming there, and we'll see how all that goes. Matthew in Oklahoma says, "Seems sounds like the government needs to run more efficiently." So, Matthew, or what? What specific are you talking about? Specifically, you're talking about there. I I know this was when we were having a discussion in the studio with uh, Senator Josh Harkins, and that, of course, that question is a valid one, and it's, that issue is a valid one. The government needs to be more efficient. And the, that, I think, kind of spurs the question, what do you mean by efficient? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant there or argumentative, but 
be specific? Does that mean typically in the private sector it means you're producing more output with less cost of input? That's, I mean, that's what efficient means. You're able to cut cycle times of, of producing goods, services, whatever it is that your business is engaged in doing, and you're doing it with, again, less cost, less, fewer resources, fewer assets to the input side. In government, that usually means fewer people. You just have fewer people on the payroll. And, you know, the problem with that, of course, is that fewer people on the payroll cuts payroll costs and, and thus expenses to the taxpayers and government. But on the other hand, it also puts more pressure on PERS. It increases the pressure on PERS because being a defined benefit plan, it means that you got to have sufficient number of employees paying into the system to fund the benefits for those that are retired and drawing benefits out of the system, income out of the system. So that can be a problem as well, and it's a conundrum. Well, we could make government more efficient by cutting headcount, but every time we cut a headcount, that's less money going into, into the PERS fund uh, necessary to cover the cost of benefits. The, and that, in, in, in a nutshell, is the flaw in the defined benefit plan model, which is why it's my view that we need to be having a serious discussion about transitioning away for that, certainly for any new tiers created um, and any new state public sector employees. Otherwise, it's going to struggle financially, and we're going to have to come up with something, and it's not going to be as pretty as it is if we start addressing that now. My mom and dad both picked cotton. My dad had to quit school in the, in the third grade to work. It was tough times on all races, says Neil from McGee. Yeah, so I, I agree. I, I just shared my family, similar situation. And you're right. That was not unusual. Not unusual. To just have to quit school and go to work to support the family. Totally agree. And that you're right. That spanned all the, the races and demographics. Tim Scott is running for vice president. Bet on it. Trump's actions will prove that, says Jerry in Waynesboro. Could be. Trump is not going to trash Tim Scott. He will consider him for a running mate if he gets the nomination. He may not. I just think it's in his nature to dream up some sort of some sort of pejorative nicknames. I just I feel like that's likely and that he's gonna be hard for him to resist that temptation. It's, uh, he's been pretty consistent, and you could be right. Maybe that, uh, maybe that won't happen. Certainly he has no issue with that as it pertains to Ron DeSantis. I am concerned that that pack ad we ran yesterday, <clears throat> Rhino, is it's a bit disingenuous because, yes, it's true, DeSantis supported the fair tax, which is got fairly broad support, certainly by libertarians in this country. Uh, taxing consumption is considered more fair by many than taxing income. But what Trump doesn't share in that ad, of course, and won't, is, well, yeah, the fair tax does impose a national sales tax, but that's in lieu of, by the way, not only income taxes, but Social Security and Medicare payroll taxes as well. That, that point 
doesn't make its way into that ad. But we're coming right back. After this break here on Middays, don't forget Luke Johnson, host of Super Talk Eagle Hour, will join us at 12.05 to talk about Southern Miss's trip to the Sunbelt Conference Baseball Tournament. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are in the Element Well Studios. We thank you for joining us. A federal judge extends the order blocking House Bill 1020 from taking effect. Well, at least for right now, House Bill 1020, of course, the legislative measure that would expand the Capitol Complex Improvement District in Jackson. Also establish a new judicial district as well. Plaintiffs, uh, the NAACP, has uh, they filed a a lawsuit that says the HB 1020 measure is not consistent with the U.S. Constitution. Interesting. So a judge says, "Well, let's just put a." Hold on it for now, at least. That's where we stand. Also, news out of Jackson, the Cracker Barrel, not too far south of our position here, sort of abruptly shut down on I-55, the frontage road there. Already carting the signage away. Saw photos on social media and the like. Sad to see that. The old Cracker Barrel out of here. And there, I think there was a statement, yeah, the decision to close a store is never one we take lightly. This was the, a company-made uh, statement. We will assist our impacted employees and managers during the transition, including offering them employment at our location in Pearl, nearby Pearl. Sad to see that. But I guess we shouldn't be surprised these days, huh? The um, the exodus in our capital city continues. Yeah, I'm looking at, at a photo here, Rhino, of a big old flatbed truck that uh, has the sign on the bed strapped in there being carted away. That's very sad. I hate to see our capital city deteriorate like that. I do know that the water situation last year was a problem for them. And not you think about it, not only water to obviously serve customers, wash dishes, etc., but they use it, you know, to make coffee and tea and stuff like that. That's pretty important in a family style restaurant that sort of Highlights breakfast. 
where you drink coffee as its main meal offering menu. That's just sad. Uh, hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe the Capitol Complex Improvement District will inject some new life into the capital city, so desperately needed. We shall see. The Washington Post is even questioning the president's age as being a problem for his re-election bid. Not something you see very often, but the editorial board, the article entitled, How Should Americans Think About Biden's Age? And they, they make the point that it could be a, a problem. 54% of U.S. Senators are 65 or older. That's interesting. What is, um, they say, what, the right, what is the right way to think about it? First, voters need to maintain a sense of perspective. Don't compare me to the Almighty. Compare me to the alternative, the President likes to say. <laughs> he has a point, particularly if the alternative to four more years of Mr. Biden is four more years of Trump. Well, of course, you know that would come from the Washington Post. Now, he'll be 78. It's hard to believe that's on Election Day next year. He'll be 78. So he's presently three years younger than Biden. Yeah, it looks like he's 15, honestly. I mean, just to be honest about it. He seems to have a lot more energy. He doesn't stumble and bumble in his speaking. He doesn't seem lost everywhere he goes. So there, there's a pretty stark contrast there. I, I guess it's accurate to say that Biden seems like an old 80 when you sort of measure across those traits and characteristics. And I would say Trump seems like a younger 77. They, um, But the Washington Post goes on to say that they are concerned there's a lot more buzz about high-ranking Democrats maybe trying to talk to the president about standing down in his re-election bid. And that, of course, means, I think for all intents and purposes, that, that Vice President Kamala Harris emerges as the candidate for president. That um, is a bit disconcerting, shall we say. Meanwhile, the President and Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, continue their discussions about the debt limit. The president returned from his trip in Japan. We played the sound yesterday where I think in that minute and a half clip, Rhino, honestly, there were more gaffes compressed into that short few statements maybe than in the last two or three months of gaffes, and that's a lot. There were a bunch crammed into a very short period of time, which is scary. He, he couldn't get any of the numbers right, and he once again, this narrative about the 50 corporations, remember he said, well, they make $40 billion, $400 billion. he stumbled over that. Well, it's 40 and he doesn't 
again, nuance is important. He makes it sound like that they're producing $40 billion in aggregate, all 50 of these corporations put together, and they paid zero taxes like they're cheating on their taxes. They're just defrauding our tax system. Totally untrue. They don't have a tax liability from a tax income perspective. The income he's referring to is what's called financial or book income, and that's just because for financial statement presentation and recording purposes, there are certain expenses that apply to computing taxable income that aren't allowed for financial statement purposes. The main one is this what Senator Harkins talked about that we did in Mississippi that got national attention, and that's immediate expensing of capital equipment investments. And you can't do that for book financial purposes, but you can you have to depreciate those assets over the useful life as prescribed by the IRS, but from a tax perspective, you get to write all that off, expense it all in the year of purchase. And it's designed to stimulate the investment in capital equipment, which it has and does. Joe doesn't seem to point that out. They, By the way, those corporations eventually do pay that tax because once they expense it in the following year, they don't have it. That expense doesn't exist unless they go buy more, and that honestly is the plan. That's the purpose of that law. You know, when they start looking at their tax liability, well, we spent all this money on capital equipment last year. Maybe it was new computers and software, or factory equipment and machinery and so forth, and they got to expense all that in a year, and then they, they don't repeat that, make more further investment. Their tax bill goes up, and the, a lot of times management looks at that and says, well, okay, we get to write it all off this year, so let's go make these investments. Well, guess who benefits? The people who make all that stuff that sell it to them. That's, um, that's how you stimulate economic activity. It's good tax policy. doesn't mean they're avoiding, evading taxes. It just means they're deferring them. But Joe won't – not only does he not mention it, let's be honest, he doesn't understand that, but most people in the Congress don't either, unfortunately. So they met last night, did the President and the, and the Speaker, and they're aware of the deadline, at least the deadline being provided by the Secretary of the Treasury, one Janet Yellen. She says, we're not going to be able to pay all the bills if they don't raise the debt ceiling by June 1. That's, what, nine days away, essentially. It does appear that there might be a breakthrough between the President and McCarthy, who represents the Republicans in the House for the most part. It's their bill that would increase the debt ceiling, but also calls for a, uh, a, f- a fairly large number of cost cuts. Looks like that maybe, I'm going to say, 80% of what McCarthy wants, maybe the President will and the Democrats will agree to, and we'll move forward. But we're coming right back after this break here on Middays, final segment and this hour, and then we've got Luke Johnson after the Fox News and Super Talk News at the top of the hour. You know what that means! 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. you on middays we're in the element well studios penny and winona asks why can't the state buy a property and develop it for profits to go to pers like netherlands did with some property in the state they can um it would require of course enacting some law to permit it Uh, an example is in the state of alabama state of Alabama's public retirement system many years ago developed a series of golf courses, the Robert Trent Jones Golf Trail. I've played, I think, all of them, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I think they do pretty well with that. So those, those, they're very nice properties. They've got really great golf courses and hotels and cottages and so forth. Uh, my company, we actually hosted some events at uh, a couple of the properties they're scattered about the the really the nicest course to me is the one over in uh, I think it's called Grand National in the Auburn Opelika area really nice beautiful lake around it and so forth but they can it, but that's uh, just to be clear penny that would help but it doesn't even remotely come close to solving the long-term problem and it, it's it's systemic problem and Anything you can do to generate revenue to to um, stabilize finances, certainly, of the program is welcome, is good, but it's going to take more than that. And uh, I think every candidate in this state for public office at the state level has got to have an eye on this issue and be, be considering it. Just as the senator said, the, so the board of PERS, PERS can increase the employer contribution, not the employee. Only the legislature can do that, is the way our system is designed. Let's see, I think presently the contribution rate is 17% change on the part of the employer. That would be the taxpayers, essentially, and 9% plus on the employee. And PERS did recently approve a 5% increase of the employer contribution, which was scheduled to go into effect this coming October, and then that got pushed back because of all the backlash. And and like the senator said, Senator Josh Harkins on the program earlier, the backlash comes from the municipalities and counties and the other government entities that aren't funded by the state, but yet rely on sales tax diversions and property taxes to fund operations. And and so when you're increasing the contribution rate statewide, that means that all of these public sector entities have to come up with the money to pay that additional payroll expense that the state would impose upon them by increasing the, well, actually not the state, in this case, PERS, 
And that's why Per said, yeah, we got too much pushback on that. We're going to delay it. So we'll see. But this will be a front and center issue, certainly, in the 2024 session. In my view, it should be in the 2023 election, just as Social Security and Medicare should be in the federal elections. But nobody will talk about it. Nobody. Like it doesn't exist. It's only the number one fiscal problem we have in the whole dang country. And nobody will talk about it. You do so, and your opponents will excoriate you. We've already witnessed it. So we got Trump who said he can't touch it. Got McCarthy who said we can't touch it. Got Biden and the Democrats that said, the Republicans want to take away your Social Security and Medicare. We're not going to touch it. Okay, so nobody's going to touch it. Which means that it's headed for imminent demise. And nobody will talk about it. It's not popular. And it's not surprising that candidates want to talk about things that people want to hear. (laughs) They don't want to hear the difficult, thorny, sensitive issues. Because you can't get elected. Essentially, you just have to put those on the back burner. Unfortunately, they never get moved to the front burner. That's why we got $31 trillion in debt. I find it a, a bit frustrating that even the folks on the right in Congress talking about, we got to rein in spending. Okay, what spending? We got to rein in spending. What spending? Nobody will give you specifics. Can't touch all this over here. That's 70%. Can't touch defense. Okay, you're down to 15% of the total spending pie. Get rid of all of it. You still got a trillion, $200 billion deficit. Next? I I just don't understand why we can't have an honest conversation about the, the current situation, the current fiscal situation of this country. Our state, thank God, I think due to good leadership, is in great shape. But this purse thing's hanging out there, and they know it, and it's got to be addressed. Great tunes selected there by Rhino, of course. The Beatles with Taxman. We're taking a break for Fox News and Super Talk News, and then the host of Super Talk Eagle Hour, Luke Johnson, joins us. And now, and now. Another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. The afternoon portion of Middays is live from the Element Well Studios. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. And we welcome to Middays now our good friend Luke Johnson, the host of Super Talk Eagle Hour. The USM Golden Eagles, I believe they get underway tomorrow, right, in the Sun Belt Conference Tournament. Is that right, Luke? Welcome to the program. Thanks, Gerard. Good to be back. I didn't know if you were going to do that segue from that retirement read straight into Scott Berry or not, but uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, good right. to be with you. <laughs> Golden Eagles will play tomorrow. Yeah, they'll play at 1230. Um, the way the Sunbelt Conference works, there's two play-in single elimination games today. 
and uh, Coastal Carolina, the one seed, the Golden Eagles with the two seed, uh, they, they don't know who they're playing yet. So uh, right. between James Madison and Old Dominion and then uh, between the two Georgia schools, Georgia Southern, Georgia State, whichever is the higher seed uh, that wins today, Golden Eagles will get those uh, get that team tomorrow at 1230, and then Coastal Carolina will get the lower seed tomorrow at 4. Pretty good shape when you get that bye in the first round, though, isn't it? It is, um, and obviously, uh, teams that finish lower in the in the, the conference, uh, and you know, there's there's uh, what eight or uh, six teams um, that that technically get that by, but in a lot of uh, tournaments, uh, that single elimination, they view it more as like a uh, you know like a. Um, a play-in game, you know. Yeah. So in in reality, it's more like an eight-team uh, eight-team tournament. Southern Miss really uh, got a great draw. Um, they're opposite Coastal, Texas State, and Louisiana. They took two out of three, and so they're on the same side as Troy and Appalachian State. Uh, Golden Eagles took two or three from Troy earlier this year and uh, didn't play Appalachian State. Yeah. All right, the great Scott Berry, as you just mentioned. Uh, announced his retirement uh, not so long ago. He is uh, he's a legend uh, at Southern Miss, for sure, and he's a legend in the state of Mississippi and in the college baseball world. He really is. You look at um, just most of his career spent in the state of Mississippi, and then he coached under, um, under Coach Palmer. And it just is a real, you know, transition of uh, solidity. I mean, you look back at what Pete Taylor did. Um, Corky was under him, and yeah. then, um, and then uh, with and Coach Denson was under him too, and then Coach Palmer was under Coach Denson, Coach Barry under Coach Palmer, yeah. and now um, Ostrander has been under under Barry. And so Scott said yesterday um, in an interview, when you do that, you're able to keep a culture going. You're able yeah. to keep expectations. Sure. And because Oz has been on the staff, um, you know, six years, um, players know what they're getting. And recruits know what they're getting, and so you're able just to continue without any hiccups. So, Luke, do you see that in in Scott? I mean, do you see uh, much of Corky's philosophy of of coaching, teaching the game, and and managing uh, honestly, uh, who are usually volatile D1 college baseball players? That's that's no easy task. You you played at that level. Uh, it's it's part of it. Do you see some of Corky in Scott? It's kind of impossible, yeah, not to. Yeah. Um, Corky and, and Hill, and I didn't ever know Coach Taylor, um, but heard the stories. They were all different, but in the same ways, uh, there, there was a whole lot of carryover. And that's just because when you get Scott, you get Corky, Hill, and Pete Taylor. Yeah. Um, simply because it's just a you know a line of succession. Um, it, but, you know, the, the personalities are, are different. Uh, but the one thing about Scott Berry um, is when people – uh, think about him. And one thing you never hear, he's at 519 wins right wow. now. You never hear that number thrown out first. You never hear all-time um, huh. you know, winning as coach at Southern Miss. You never hear six regional uh, or you know, whatever regionals in a row it is. You don't hear the longest 40-win streak, 40-game uh, you know, win streak uh, in the country. You always hear about Scott the person. 
Sure. And you always hear that, that first and foremost. And I told him this past week, and I've said it on the Eagle Hour, I got to know him as a student athlete playing football at Southern Miss. And then I got to know him as a fan. And then, you know, um, co-hosting the Eagle Hour, I got to know him from that perspective. And I've never known Scott to, to be anything other than, you know, when I met him as a freshman or a sophomore at Southern Miss. He's always been, you know, that guy. I'll tell you a quick story that just epitomizes. He would get embarrassed if you heard me saying this, but oh well, here we go. So uh, Friday, bef- you know, they're going to honor him uh, that night. And uh, right outside the Pete, uh, on the inside it's a concession stand, but on the outside it's a ticket booth. And on the side of the ticket booth there's a, a storage room. So I went by to see him. It was like 2.30, and he wasn't in his office, so I was walking up to the Pete. And Scott emerges from, like, this closet, and he's sweating down. And I was like, Coach, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I was up in the attic looking for some more 40 jerseys and uh, for, for my family to wear tonight. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a manager or a student, you know, out there doing that. The, the head baseball coach is going to be honored in a few hours. And one of the jerseys that he had, Gerard, was his 2009 College World Series jersey. It's just been sitting in an attic That's somewhere. Awesome. And I was like... Brother needs to be at your house, but I mean that epitomizes. Yeah. He's he's always sees people um, as as equal. He's never been one um, to look down on anyone at all. In a lot of ways, um, when you're around him, you feel highly valued because you feel like he cares about you. You know, I know you played uh, football, and uh, I'm an old baseball guy. Unfortunately, I got hurt and had to cut my career short, but was was headed to play. But you, you've been around the sport, both sports a lot, all sports. Managing baseball players is a little different than managing football players. You agree with that? It's it's different. It's yeah, a different I mean, coaching approach. It is because everything leads up to one game, and you've only got you know now you've got twelve of them. We only had eleven, you know, when I played. If you had twelve, you got to a bowl. But yeah, you know, you got to turn around sometimes in two hours or forty five minutes on the doubleheader game or the next day, and and uh, you know, and football coaches, you, they want you to sit in it for a little bit. Yeah, if you if you yeah. mess up. Yeah, and uh, they want you to enjoy it a little bit if you do success. Baseball, I mean, it's just, just the opposite. Move on. Yeah, got to flush exactly it. Right. You got, I used to teach kids all the time. You got to flush it. You cannot because you know it happens during the game. You fail during the game. You got to go up to the plate again after striking out the last time. You got to toe the rubber after giving up a dinger or something, and you got to flush it. And if you can't, you can't play the game. You just simply can't. And coaches, I've always thought. The most successful in baseball, they stay out of the players' heads. If they're in the players' heads and they dwell on that, they simply can't perform. And and I think your point about just the personality of Coach Barry, I would argue that's why he's been successful. And, I mean, you'll see him. Uh, he, he motivates his players. I mean, there have been times he chews on them. At the same time, I mean, uh, I've always said this: successful coaches um, can can and you know motivate their players to motivate each other. Yeah. And there's been some times where you know Scott and other guys they just stay out of the way and, and let the right. guys take care yeah. of it. And uh, and so he's he's shown a balance um, um to do both for sure. All right. What's your outlook for uh, Southern Miss in the tournament? Well, I mean. Th- there's there's pressure in the sense um, that if they want to host, they need to win it. 
Yeah. If, and, and I would say get back into the hosting conversation, which is really crazy. The schedule this year uh, going in was uh, super, super tough, and you thought the strength of the schedule would be a little higher. Some of the teams that they thought would be really good uh, weren't as good this year. And so Eagles are at 28 RPI right now, even with 37 wins. So if they were to win four games, they would get to 41 um, and get back in the hosting conversation. You know, But for them, uh, make it to the semifinals uh, if they don't host – um, you know, I could see them, um, uh, different outlets have them going to Baton Rouge, Nashville, if, if Alabama gets a bid, going to Tuscaloosa. Uh, but, I mean, for, for them, because they didn't want to, uh, because they didn't win the regular season, and uh, Coastal Carolina did, they can still come away with a tourney, tournament championship. And, you know, some of these guys that are probably playing for the last time, like Tanner Hall and other guys that may get drafted, like Justin Storm, along with Christopher Sargent and Danny Lynch and, and, and uh, Dustin Dickerson, and uh, they've got an opportunity to still have a championship. And so uh, it'll be, be interesting to see, um, you know, how the pitching goes. Uh, I fully expect Tanner Hall to throw a game one yeah. just to eat up innings and, and to take care of that and to save the bullpen for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, I, I suspect that'd be the case as well. As well. And, uh, and where are they playing the tournament? It's in Montgomery, right? So it's in Montgomery. It's yeah. at the Montgomery Biscuit State yeah. downtown. Um, Bob's headed over today. I'll be headed out in the morning. We're actually uh, thankful for, for the company allowing us. We'll be on site doing two shows uh, tomorrow and Thursday live from the Sunbelt Tournament. And that's a great venue. I've been there. The Biscuits uh, Stadium is pretty cool there at Montgomery. And, you know, something else before we go here, uh, Luke, when you, when you mention these names that maybe aren't household names to a lot of Mississippians, Appalachian State, for example, playing baseball, these guys are all dead gum good, aren't they? I mean, it's amazing in the game of baseball. You can take anybody's Friday night starter, and they can compete with anybody else's Friday night starter in the country, just about. Sunbelt got more uh, invites last year to the tournament than Conference USA did, and all year long they've been a, a top-five RPI conference, the Sunbelt has. So Southern Miss coming in along with Old Dominion and some of the other schools. It's a top-notch conference, and uh, Coastal Carolina's already going to host. Yeah. Um, so if Eagles make some noise, you know, Sunbelt can get two hosting spots. Look forward to it. Good luck to the Southern Miss Golden Eagles in the Sunbelt Conference Tournament. We um, appreciate you being on the program, Luke. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Rhino, for that uh, Southern Miss to the top there. Good stuff. <laughs> We're stepping aside for a break. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Fourteen twenty-five and forty ninety-eight. I throw the rock and roll party on my last birthday, but it's good. I rockin' my life away. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi from the Element Well Studios. Casey on the C Spire text line says, we were talking about PERS earlier and just the the uh, contribution rates into the PERS program, 17% and change on the part of the employer, that would be, of course, the taxpayers, and 9% change is the contribution rate uh, of the employee. 
says we add roughly 30% to salaries for teachers. This is for benefits, including PERS. This should be part of the teacher salary conversation, but it never is. Well, if you're talking about at the state level, Casey, it is uh, certainly whenever I've talked to state uh, legislators, elected leaders about it, because I always look at what's proposed as the pay raise uh, or as a percentage of pay, let's say, or maybe it's a dollar value of just the compensation, the salary itself, and then I always add 30% to that um, just to arrive at and to compute the, the total cost. Same way we do in the private sector running a business. You look at hiring somebody and you know you're going to pay them a certain salary. You know, it's, it's typically we add 20% to that. Uh, for burden, what's called payroll burden. It's just, you're right, employer cost of benefits, health insurance, retirement, 401k plan, employer share of Social Security, Medicare, sure. So, But I agree, it, um, it's significant in the public sector, the 30%, because you not only got the standard sort of 20% we do in the, in the uh, private sector, but you've got this PERS burden as well. So that increases it, and no doubt it's a, it's a total full. It's called fully loaded cost is the accounting terminology for it. But you're right; it needs to be considered, and uh, in those discussions for sure. Um, oh, somebody said they keep missing when you talk about purse. Really, nothing special today um, on the ceasefire text line, other than I think that ought to be an issue that gets addressed by those running for public office in Mississippi because it's. It is one of those things that ain't going away. It's just like Social Security and Medicare. Even though we talk about that a lot here on the program, they won't discuss it. And it's not going away. And it is a problem that has uh, got to be addressed. And we're all responsible for it. Uh, let's see. Why can't the over 80 million designated for education go to the teacher's report? Uh, retirement in the lottery. Well, it's a couple things there, Jerry. First, the first $80 million of net proceeds produced in a year by the lottery goes to roads and bridges, not education. Roads and bridges, the state highway fund. So you got that backwards. The amount over the $80 million goes to what's called the Education Enhancement Fund. And um, in the past two full years of operations, that figure has been 42 to $48 million. The Education Enhancement Fund was created by law several years ago, and it includes a number of formulas that specify how the money in that fund gets allocated into um, the education world in Mississippi, and that includes K-12, community colleges, and higher ed. It also funds some pre-K, some of the costs for the uh, pre-K uh, education, pre-K programs. Mostly designed the way the money's allocated to cover the cost and fund fixed assets, stadiums, for example, buildings, HVAC, and the like does not fund salaries, therefore it does not fund PERS. And and the other thing um, is that it is not nearly 
Uh, oh, I, I see. He did point out over the eighty million. Sorry for that, Jerry. I didn't read read the way you put you worded that there. I read it incorrectly. But it's it's a minimum amount of money is the main thing that uh, wouldn't really solve the problem. But again, the legislature could certainly do that. I mean, you they have the power to pass law to allocate lottery proceeds however the heck they want, but they'd have to pass a law to do it. Right now, in accordance with the Lottery Act, the Alice G. Clark Lottery Act, the money gets allocated the way I just described. So they they could amend that by passing law. How popular that would be? I don't think it'd be very popular, honestly, Jerry, because the, the, the catalyst for even Governor Phil Bryant calling the special session to pass the lottery law in Mississippi was the fact that there was an outcry from citizens, mainly at the county level, that that um, we needed more money for roads and bridges. And increasing fuel taxes is not a popular idea. That can't pass. That's what most people in the state who wanted to see more funding for roads and bridges, that is what they support. And the governor said, well, okay, we can't get that through. We need money for roads and bridges. We're sort of on the fence as to having the number of votes necessary to pass a lottery, establish a lottery in Mississippi. Let's put those two together. Okay. Can we get a lottery bill passed if money goes to roads and bridges since there's no inclination on the part of legislators to increase fuel taxes, in, in fact? He did a little vote counting, as he should have, before he called the special session. Called the special session. There was some deliberations, but for the most part, what we ended up with is pretty close to what was started as a concept to use proceeds to fund roads and bridges, state highway fund. That's how we ended up where we are. Constant flow, though. Well, yeah, it is, Jerry, but so is payroll, uh, the contributions on payroll. I just don't think there's any appetite in the legislature to change where lottery proceeds go at this point. My, my take on it. Thomas wants us to know that he thinks that income taxes, Medicaid expansion, and the ballot initiatives will be the key issues in the 2023 state elections. And wants to know if the state flag issue will raise its head at some point. Well, I, I have heard that there are people who would like to, groups of people who would like to restore the old flag as the state flag, the 1894 flag, have discussed uh, putting together a ballot initiative to do so and getting such a measure on the ballot for people to vote on the citizens of Mississippi to vote to change the flag back to the old one. And they have uh, talked about organizing an effort to do such. Honestly, based on polls I've seen, and it's it's been a couple of years, I don't think that would pass. Polls show overwhelmingly that most Mississippians support changing the flag. So we could certainly put the old flag on the ballot. Hey, and a real simple question. Do you want to do you want this flag? Remember the, the ballot actually had the designs on the ballot. You chose from was it three? 
options, I think, that uh, remember there was a flag commission formed and it received lots of suggestions for the design and it seems like it was three that we had. I thought to it was from. up down on the ballot, but there were you had the option to submit. Okay, well I I may not recall it the way it actually worked. Um, maybe that was the case, but I know I want to say though that the, the designs themselves were depicted, were they not on the ballot? Oh yeah, yeah. So you want this one, that one, and so it was for your eyes to see to to choose one. But nonetheless, the um, the uh, the polls reflect that most people do support changing the flag. You know, Secretary of State Michael Watson shared with me right after the 2020 elections that more more people voted on their ballot for the flag than did president, which was the leading issue on the ballot. I mean, that would be the top issue, of course, the election of president in a presidential election year, which means that a lot of people voted for one of the flag designs, but did not select a president. I guess didn't like either candidate, but they felt compelled to at least express their view and um, voice their preference on the flag change. Interesting. Or the replacement flag. Because we really didn't have the option to say yes or no, do you want to change it, right? We didn't have that option. That wasn't an option. That The medical marijuana deal was you had a yes, no, and then you selected which program you wanted. You just had some designs to choose from, as I recall. Hmm. We're taking a break right here with Tom Petty bumping us out of this segment, coming back with half an hour of middays from the Element Well Studios. This program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios, don't forget once again, Middays with Gerard and the Super Talk Eagle Hour will both be broadcasting Friday from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum at Camp Shelby in Hattiesburg. Looking forward to that. The, Hattis- uh, the uh, museum, I should say, is really cool, and if you haven't been there, I strongly encourage you to do so. And again, sign up for our newsletter, supertalk.fm slash newsletter. That's the website. Uh, where you log in to uh, go sign up to receive updates from the news department here at Supertalk. Ben from Madison says, in my opinion, Hoseman should clarify his position regarding the initiative process. It seems to say he supports it, but his actions tell a different story. I I think that is uh, a statement you could likely apply to many members 
of the legislature been who just feel like it's their responsibility as our elected officials in our republic form of government to make law. And there's some degree of objection there. Um, I've talked to the lieutenant governor directly about this issue. And uh, again, the, the thing he shared with me on more than one occasion is concern about outsiders, well-funded outside interest, uh, sort of hijacking the process and getting measures on the ballot that would pass. Now, I say if they pass, then maybe that's the right policy. I just think that some of those policies are, in some circles, unpopular, and certainly to some members of the legislature. You recall that, I think, Speaker of the House Philip Gunn, who, of course, uh, vehemently opposes uh, abortion, very much a pro-life person, he wanted to restrict the ballot initiative process such that any measure that would legalize access to abortion would um, not be permitted. Now, I believe, I'm not saying I support this, I'm just offering opinion that such a measure would pass on the ballot here in Mississippi. And that's just based on polls, national polls primarily, and just talking to lots of folks, I, I think it would pass. And think about the makeup of our state. It's roughly 60-40, Republican-Democrat. You've got to assume you get all the 40% of Democrat voters and peel off some Republican voters. You don't need but 10-plus percent to get something through. And the same applies to Medicaid expansion. These are things that the, certainly the legislature is not going to do. It doesn't appear. Uh, again, expand abortion access, expand Medicaid. Not going to do, but a ballot measure probably pass. Same for recreational marijuana. I do have some concerns about the viability of the marijuana program, the medical marijuana, medical cannabis program um, in the in the state, simply because the number of patients who have signed up is sitting around 10,000. And um, also the number of practitioners who have gone through the process, completed the process to be certified, to certify a patient for medical cannabis. It's, it's not at the numbers it thought was thought to be. So just from an economic perspective, 10,000 patients, experts I've talked to say we need 50,000 to make the industry just viable, just break even. It just doesn't feel like we're going to get there. 50,000. That's 5x where we are today. Not on the timeline that was given. Right. So... Um, I think I may have shared that I moderated a panel discussion on this subject a couple of weeks ago, and one of the individuals on the panel who's in the insurance business that is involved in writing, underwriting insurance for many of the players in the industry, some specialized expertise that he and his firm have, 
and he said that he expected perhaps as much as half of the dispensaries in operation today to not exist by the end of the year, just from an economic perspective. Now, one of the issues is it's expensive. I think I heard him say in the panel discussion, 270 an ounce on average. So if you purchase the maximum in a month allowed under our law, it's about 800 bucks. So does that mean those who seek cannabis for their ailments would just do it on the street in the like many have been? I mean, it's happening every day, round the clock, across the country, including in Mississippi. So that's an interesting thing to keep your eye on. I just expected, Rhino, I guess, based on the noise made about it, maybe it's few people making a lot of noise. I don't know, honestly. It just sort of felt like, though, that, wow, the floodgates are going to open once this thing's passed. And that just that's not the case thus far. Hmm. I think it had a lot of support, a lot of compassionate support from people that did not necessarily want to partake but did see it as a right that should be provided and given to those suffering from terminal illness sure absolutely but that may not measure up to be enough that's the that's the point here it's not about the virtue of the program as much as it is the economic viability of it and that's that's the only thing that I'm really talking about here today. And some other states have experienced some issues as well with that. If you know, if the there's a price point at which you know a patient just says, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing, you know, figure out another source. And that's a, a problem because many who oppose it always say, Well, if we're gonna implement a program, let's just tax the snot out of it and raise a bunch of money. Well, that's fine, except now you've caused the price to be so expensive that Nobody wants to participate, so we're back to where we were, potentially. I'm not doom and glooming it, and I'm not shutting it down yet. I'm just pointing out that right now, it's got a long way to go, the program does, to become the economically viable system that uh, it was expected to be. What else we got here? Oh, Jerry in Waynesboro is pointing out a tweet by Elon Musk. FBI says it won't release January 6th surveillance video because it would show too many undercover government agents and informants. How many were there? I mean, just approximately, says Elon. And somebody responded, January 6th was the largest FBI false flag operation in the history of America. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where all that lands and... I don't know about whether or not the FBI's being totally honest about that. I know that I my, think it's safe to say they're not being honest. And I, you know, read more about the the whistleblowers. Were, were there four? I think that uh, came forward, testified in front of the Congress. I mean, their their testimony was shocking. Honestly, it was disturbing. Many on the left, of course, are as they always have, they're trying to discredit them. And they all said to a person, my life's been turned upside down by this. You've, you've seen that. How could it not be? How could it not be? Because that's how we roll in this country here. You, you redress your government. You expose wrongdoing. And if somebody on the other side of the political aisle from you 
doesn't like that, or maybe if, if you're in doing so, you're perhaps damaging the prospects of that party's power. They don't care what it takes to ruin your life. That's a shame. That's not the way the American system should work. Vivek Ramaswamy says, yeah, we ought to seriously consider, consider eliminating the FBI. He, he makes a good case for why is this even necessary? We have justice and we have Department of Justice, the federal level, federal level and the FBI. Why is this necessary? He makes a good, a good case on that. Thinks maybe these are, many of those matters should be handled by state law enforcement. He said, by the way, Rhino, if he's elected the very first day, he's ending affirmative action in the federal government. I support that. I think he's right in doing so. No doubt about it. Good pot is going for $400 an ounce. Really? On the street? That's what Greg and Newton says. So that's more than the medical. That I, that's what I was told at this event. 270 is the average retail price. Really? 400 an ounce? Okay. Well, then, I guess I can't explain then why do we only have 10,000 patients signed up. Because they've been able to for, what, six months? Right? Since last November, I believe, the Department of Health published all the systems that one has to start with to sign up, apply for a car. We're coming right back with a final segment here on uh, Middays. i got to tell you about North Carolina and education choice, what's going on with the governor there. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert, going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. Oh, yeah, that's a propos for the, <laughs> the weed discussion. Uh, a couple of things before we're out of here for the day that we'll get to. First, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy just emerged from the Oval Office in the White House and said they are not yet there on a deal and that the president is dug in, that was his words, dug in and insisting on tax increases. Tax increases. You knew that was coming. Also, um, quickly, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper has declared a state of emergency over a school choice bill. State of emergency. We can't let people choose where to go to school. That's an emergency. Unbelievable. So this was um, a school choice bill that passed the state legislature, and he was not able to veto it without it being subject to override. He says, it's time to declare a state of emergency for public education in North Carolina. There's no executive order like with a hurricane or the pandemic, but it's no less important. Yeah, which means you would issue an executive order if you could, wouldn't you there, Governor? Ridiculous. Back to the flag deal. So Rhino did a little research on the break. I think we had a couple people text us as well. It's just been a while. I can't remember. So 
a commission. I do recall the commission being formed. I want to say the governor, lieutenant governor, speaker yeah, appointed. Yeah, three, three, and three. Yeah, okay. And they got together. They considered. They all got to pick twenty-five apiece. All right, and people just anybody could just submit a design, right? Yeah, it was over two thousand designs submitted. So, so they sifted through all those, and then they essentially voted on one to place on the ballot. Yeah, they whittled it down from picking 25 apiece, so okay. each each of the nine picked 25. Then they whittled it down to their semifinalists of five, and then from those five, they voted and picked two. Okay. And then the final meeting, they all voted, or voted eight to one for the In God We Trust flag. Okay. So it's just a classic process of elimination vote procedure. We ended up with that one on the ballot, and you just either voted for it or not. And if, as I recall, if the no's had won, it went back to the commission. Correct. It doesn't mean, oh, well, the old flag stays in place. No. That was gone. That We were going to replace the flag I no matter what. Legislature. It was just, right, it was just which one are we going to replace it with. That's what we voted on at the at the ballot box. Now, I know a lot of people who wanted to retain the old flag believe that they were wronged and that they were not able to to cast a vote to retain it, to keep the old flag. I do believe you could get a measure that would, again, restore the old flag as the state flag. I don't think it would pass, though, you know, at the ballot. I don't. That's just based on... Considering the new flag was voted on... Favorably by 71% of voters, and out of the 82 counties, only two had a majority of their voters say no. Right. And it barely, right? Yeah. So that um, that's how we got to where we are. So I, I think if you put a, a head-up competition, old flag, existing flag, on the ballot, I think that new existing flag would win. That's my opinion. Just an opinion. Uh, again, based on polls, based on anecdotal discussions, etc., I do think that'd be the case. I, I honestly, I wish we'd move forward. You know, I, I, it was brought up, and mainly in the context of the ballot initiatives, why I brought it up. I do think there are some people who have discussed. Yeah, we can get if we get the ballot initiative through, we could get a measure on the ballot, and we could restore the old flag. I think it'd go down in flames, honestly. They spend a lot of I time and money. I think they'd have a hard time collecting enough signatures well, to that, get it on the ballot. You could be right about that. Do I think that's why the lieutenant governor and some other members of the Senate want a higher signature threshold? No, it's not for that. It's it's concern about outsiders, and no outsiders are coming into the state that I could think of that would fund an effort to restore the old flag. That's not what they're interested in, because there ain't no money in that. Um. Darren and Jackson says, I don't want to lose my two-way rights by signing up for a medical dope card. Of course, Rhino has done an excellent job explaining that over and over and over again. And somebody on the ceasefire text line says, I am literally stupid that the old flag would win. Well, that's fine. That's your opinion. My opinion is it would it would lose. I, I really do believe that's to, to be the case. This is from the same person that accused us of being Klansmen, so obviously they're an idiot. I see that. You're right, they sure did. 
back at the early go back uh, to the 205 and read a book you might <laughs> learn something there ain't no way that flag would beat the old flag says larry and my it absolutely would larry in my opinion you share a different one i respect that and appreciate that um i say we just do a clear acetate flag how about that this is this is uh unbelievable during the flag discussion a couple of years ago, I remember someone saying the people did not choose the last flag either. It was chosen by the legislature. I don't know. Probably. Okay, Rhino's shaking his head. We're out of here today, folks. Thanks so much for joining us. Back with you tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.